you can open with me to John chapter 9. On uh, Saturday, November 1st, 1755, the streets of Lisbon were empty. Now, Lisbon is the the capital city of Portugal, uh, and almost all of the 250,000 residents of Portugal uh, were packed into uh, cathedrals uh, and uh, local Roman Catholic churches uh, in order to celebrate uh, All Saints Day. And while those uh, cathedrals and and churches were were crowded with people, there was a great earthquake uh, that struck. This earthquake measured somewhere between 8.5 and 9.1 on the Richter scale. It would be the equivalent of 32,000 atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima. 32,000. Or 475 megatons of TNT. So while... 250,000 people are are packed into these cathedrals and and churches that day. Many of the buildings in the city collapse. And it's estimated that around 10,000 people uh, immediately died just in the collapse of those buildings. But that was not the end of the trouble. The shifting plates uh, under the Atlantic Ocean created a tidal wave uh, 30 to 45 feet high uh, that then uh, rushed and flowed into the city, devastating it even more. But then even after that, there were fires uh, that raged throughout the city. Uh, And after all was done, this unexpected trouble that came upon the city. Think about it. There's no warning for an earthquake, right? just comes upon you. This unexpected event suddenly levels buildings, tsunami comes in, fires rage afterwards. It's estimated that about 40,000 people died. About 5.8 million square miles were devastated. Think about that. 5.8 million. Uh, and the entire city of Lisbon lay uh, in... Uh, complete rubble and destruction for about six years. Think about that. Uh, And so this this heartbreaking disaster sparked a a great discussion throughout all of Europe. Because when we see tragedy uh, to this degree, uh, what are the, the initial questions that come to mind? Why? We ask this question, why uh, did this happen? Uh, and uh, in, at that point in time, the predominant worldview uh, was, uh, of you know, Western thought in, in Europe, was Christianity. Whether Roman Catholicism or uh, Protestantism. But this was also at the heart of the, the very first days or the beginning of the Enlightenment, uh, where man was beginning to question God, and this was the, the catalyst uh, of many people uh, moving away from God because of this problem uh, of suffering, the problem of evil. 
In theological terms, uh, this discussion is known as theodicy. The idea of how do we justify God in the face of evil? How do I defend God uh, because evil exists in the world? Right? These are the, the natural questions that uh, began back then and have continued even into our day. Right? It's a common objection to why people move away from Christianity or could never uh, believe the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible proclaims uh, a God who is sovereign and in control uh, and a God who is loving. So, again, the question of, well, where is God in the midst of this suffering, and why would a loving God allow these types of disasters? And the list could just go on and on throughout human history. Why would God allow such suffering and evil to exist and take place in the world? And now, as as followers of Jesus, we we need answers. We want to understand this reality for ourselves, right? Because we all suffer, we see suffering, we feel suffering in our world. So we ourselves need these answers. What does the Bible have to say? What has God told us about why he has allowed suffering into this world that he has created? But we also need clear answers because in our current secular culture, we may be the only ones who have any answers that are adequate to this. Uh, if our culture has done everything that they can to to push God away uh, and to silence Him, where do they turn? And answers about what is good, what is evil, uh, how to explain suffering, they don't have any good answers. Uh, they, they can't explain that. If you are uh, an atheist who believes in evolution, uh, we should be all be competing against one another for the same resources. Right? If it's survival of the fittest, then the, the, the fittest will survive, and we are competing against one another. But they cannot explain evil. And an evolutionist or an atheist cannot explain why does our heart immediately break, and why do we grieve when we hear about uh, an earthquake where 40,000 people passed away. Evolution cannot give us an explanation for that. Evolution cannot explain evil or define it. And so our culture has a problem. It has lost the capacity to wrestle with suffering. One secular author says, A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Never before have images of horror been so widely disseminated and so appalling. The repertoire of evil has never been richer. And yet never have our responses been so weak. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. And so we have a tremendous opportunity as believers, as followers of Christ. We have answers that the world needs. Uh, We have answers that, that no one else has. So this is a tremendous opportunity for us to be salt and light in our world in the midst of suffering and evil. Again, we have a greater access to see all of the evil in the world than ever before through smartphones and the, and the internet, television. It's constantly in our face. And yet, when, we, when it's most in our face, we have the, the fewest amount of resources and the, the intellectual capability of explaining and dealing with it. 
in society in general. But the Bible gives answers. And, and granted, not everyone is going to uh, accept the answers that we see today. Not, not everyone is going to accept the answers that the Bible gives to us concerning why God has allowed and continues to allow suffering in this world. But it's still true what the Bible says, even if we struggle to accept it or others struggle to accept it. This is uh, truth from God concerning His creation. And as we come to, to John chapter 9 this morning, Jesus is going to, to speak very briefly about God's purpose in human suffering. And as we come to the beginning of John chapter 9, we're kind of entering into a little bit of a, a new section uh, in John's gospel. John 7 and 8 uh, took place uh, during the Feast of Booths, uh, and we, we've talked about that. Uh, and uh, John 8 was all on the last day of the feast. Uh, and the, the events from, from John 9, 1 through 10, 21, uh, we're not exactly sure when they take place. They, they could take place on the very same day, on the last day of the feast, or they could take place somewhere uh, in about a span of two and a half months uh, when Jesus is in Jerusalem. And we know this because if you, if you turn over to chapter 10, verse 22, we suddenly see uh, the feast of dedication which is Hanukkah. Uh, and Jesus is there in Jerusalem uh, during the, the Feast of Hanukkah. And so the Feast of Booze is in October, and then Hanukkah is in mid-December. Uh, so we have about two and a half months where, when this could take place. I, I think this more than likely was maybe the same day uh, as the events of John 7 and 8. I think this is the, the very same day, the final day of the feast, that Jesus departs from the temple. Uh, and then uh, John chapter 9 uh, is going to center upon Jesus' healing of a man who was born blind. Uh, and this is about a healing, but it's also going to be uh, about Jesus giving sight to the blind and showing that those who think they have sight are really those who are spiritually blind. Uh, and, and that's going to become clear at the very end of the chapter, leading into John chapter 10, where Jesus is going to distinguish himself as uh, the good, true, and faithful shepherd in contrast with the false shepherds of Israel who are spiritually blind and leading the nation astray. And so uh, where uh, the events of this chapter focus upon the healing that takes place in, in verses 4 through 12, we'll, we'll look at that next week, but this morning I just want to look at verses 1 through 3. If you would join me in reading those. It says, As he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him pause and pray before we we jump into these verses father we would come to you begging you for wisdom begging you for understanding a very lofty topic lord we 
overwhelmed by just this this conversation, this topic, this truth about suffering, about your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lay aside all of our own preconceived notions about who you are and what you should do for us. Lord, help us to come with hearts that are ready to hear from your word and to apply your word to our lives. And may your word be the lens that we see all things through, especially our suffering and the suffering in the world around us. Please lead us and guide us as we study your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we see this passage, as as we look at it closely, uh, we're going to see uh, a question from the disciples and an answer from Jesus, right? Very uh, brief and and short, but the answer that Jesus gives uh, is a weighty explanation concerning why God allows suffering. Uh, And his answer spans across time, space, culture, and personal experience. Uh, This is insight uh, into what God is seeking to do in all of human history and in his creation. This passage is going to uh, explain why God has allowed and continues to allow human suffering. And and as we look at this passage, we're going to see three principles or three premises concerning uh, suffering and the glory of God. And these principles are going to help us to understand God's greater purpose underneath our own suffering and all of the suffering that we see and experience in the world around us. So these, these three principles, the first is found in Verse 1, we could say it this way, that suffering is a universal human experience. Because as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So again, this is immediately following verse uh, 59. It says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then again, there, there were no chapter breaks uh, when the apostle John wrote this. Uh, And so he and his disciples are leaving from the temple uh, and they pass by this man who had been born blind. And we're given this uh, additional information and this all-important detail, right? That that he was born blind, that he came into this world in a state of suffering. He came into this world being incomplete, so to speak, unable to see. He has always been in darkness. And this means that he has always been suffering. And while you and I may not have been born blind, uh, we have entered into a state of suffering in the exact same way. Not to the same degree, uh, but you and I have entered into a world where suffering is a universal human experience. Uh, There is no one, nor has there ever been, Uh, who has not been touched by suffering and impacted by it in some capacity or another. Uh, And as as life continues onward, uh, it seems like we become more and more acquainted with suffering and grief, right? And I remember when I uh, was was a brand new believer and I began to read uh, the book of Psalms. And uh, there were other uh, older saints in in the church that I was attending and, and they... Uh, kept 
speaking about how psalms were, were so important to them. And I was reading it, and I was like, it's just not making sense to me. Uh, I wasn't quite understanding. Uh, but as time has, has gone on, uh, as we begin to, to suffer a little bit more in this life, suddenly w- when David speaks about his own suffering, our heart resonates with his heart. Uh, we know what that feels like to be in despair, to be deeply grieved, for others to be after us or to be facing the, the consequences and the reality of our own sin. Uh, and, and the Psalms make more and more sense the more we have suffered. That's so true. And again, this is the universal human experience. And I, I would uh, venture to say that I'm, I'm not the only one who has had that experience with the Psalms or, or other portions of God's Word. But this universal human experience of, of suffering, it, it cannot be uh, avoided. It cannot be done away with and escaped. Uh, try as we might. Very interesting book called uh, The Emperor of All Maladies. It's, a, it's called A Biography of Cancer. Uh, and it is written by a, a medical doctor. And by the end of the book, after all of the uh, tracing the, the history of it and do all of this research and all of these things, he comes to the conclusion that cancer cannot be cured uh, because it, it's not a, some type of a bacteria that, that uh, comes uh, from the outside and comes into our body. It's not some type of a virus uh, that comes in. Because cancer is uh, just in us. Uh, it doesn't happen accidentally, and, and cancer is just a reality of being human. Uh, it can't uh, be avoided. Now, we can do things to, uh, to remove cancer once it's present, right? Uh, we, we can uh, do things to, to try and limit its, its growth, uh, but we cannot ever cure cancer. This is the, the conclusion that the secular doctor comes to uh, in this book. So suffering is a reality of living in a fallen world. And it's not just a probability, it's an assurance. John 16, 33, what did Jesus say? In this world you will have tribulation. Uh, that, that is a, uh, a promise. It's, it's not usually the promise that we love to cling to uh, in the Gospel of John. There's many other promises that, that bring comfort to our hearts. But we, we need to understand that that promise is just as true as all the others. So if this is a universal human experience, first and foremost, we have to prepare our own hearts. What are our expectations for this life? Uh, Do do we expect comfort uh, and and joy all of our days? Or do we need to to reset uh, what we expect God to to bring in and to allow in uh, and to understand that we are going to have suffering come into our lives? We have to prepare our own hearts uh, those of you who are parents, I would also venture to say that we have to disciple our children to be prepared for suffering. Right? Don't, don't walk through life uh, with your children in such a way that when the first trial comes to them, they're completely devastated and questioning who God is, uh, His character, His trustworthiness. No, we need to teach our children a, a theology of suffering so that they are prepared uh, to face what everybody is going to experience. And also... As parents, what do we typically try and do with our children? Protect them from suffering in any way, right? 
uh, they sin and we throw our bodies over them to protect them from the consequences of their own decisions at times. We, we do everything that we can to protect them when the reality is we need to teach them that suffering is a, a universal experience. We need to teach them uh, and connect between sin and suffering and, and just also the reality of living in a fallen world. Set the right expectations with our children. And then I would also say this. Because suffering is a universal human experience, what do we need to be prepared to do? To minister to others who are suffering. And we need to have compassion upon uh, those who are in the midst of suffering. Not as the disciples do here. But, but we need to be ready to be the hands and feet. Right? That's part of what we're doing with Stanton Healthcare. Right? We want to minister uh, with them and alongside them to those who uh, are suddenly going to have hardships what we need to be prepared to do. And again, in, in the past, suffering has driven humanity to God for answers. But when God's taken out of the picture, humanity is just driven to despair. We're looking for ultimate answers and we can't find any because we've removed the ultimate and final God. This is devastating ultimately to our culture. But this is, this is the first premise that we have to come to grips with, that suffering is a universal human experience. Then there's a, a second premise or a second principle found in verse 2. And it is so important. Suffering is not always a result of human sin. Verse 2 says, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so the disciples ask a question, And in asking the question, the way that they do, they reveal their underlying beliefs. We've talked about those. Their underlying presupposition. That there is something that they believe about sin and suffering implied in the way that this is uh, worded. They said, who is it that sinned? And so their presupposition is, someone sinned. <laughs> that, that this man's suffering is in some way connected to uh, his sin or the sin of his parents. Uh, and you, when you think about it, since he was born blind, if he was the cause of his own sin, when did he have to sin to be the cause of it? In the womb. Right? So like, did he somehow sin in the womb? Or was it somehow uh, his parents sinned and that was passed on to him and he's being judged for, for their uh, sinful decisions? And so uh, within all of this, th- this presupposition is that suffering is only a result of sin. Uh, and it was a, a common uh, idea uh, in Jesus' time. It's a common idea now. And it was a common idea way back uh, in the Old Testament. One ancient Jewish rabbi says this. He says, There is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. Uh, and that's the, the point uh, that the disciples are, are making here. And they really just want clarification. Whose sin is it? Uh, but it's got to be connected with sin in some way. That's their, their underlying belief. And, and to this extent, uh, the disciples, are at this very moment, they are like Job's friends. Uh, do you remember in the Old Testament? Uh, complete disaster strikes Job. Uh, his children uh, are killed. Uh, all of his possessions are, are, are taken away. Uh, he is uh, struck uh, 
His health is taken with him. He, he's hit with boils and all of these things. Even his wife, his loving wife, says, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, that's the best thing that you can do right now. Uh, and Job has these friends that come, and initially they're great friends. They sit with him a whole week without saying anything. But then when they begin to speak, their explanation shows that they have been judging Job in their hearts. That Job, you've brought all of this on yourself. This is all your fault. There must be some secret sin that you've been cherishing, and God is judging you for it right now. Listen to Job chapter 4, verse 7. One of the friends says, Remember who was innocent, or who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Implication, Job, you've sinned in some way, because if you were upright, you wouldn't be experiencing what you're experiencing right now. Job chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 Another friend, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. It's a good friend, right? Your kids must have sinned. That's why God took them. The disciples have that mindset. Sin must be involved here in some way. But uh, the whole point of the book of Job... Uh, It's the ultimate book on the problem of evil uh, and the reality of suffering because the whole book begins, Job chapter 1, verse 1, clearly stating that Job is a righteous man. Listen to this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The whole premise of the book is that the righteous will suffer in this life. There is no way of escaping suffering. And so this understanding that the disciples are bringing in is false. Now we have to look briefly at what what are the causes of suffering. Sin is uh, most assuredly a cause in suffering, but it is not the only cause. But we love cookie-cutter answers, right? We love to say, well, let's just make this simple. Sin is always the cause of suffering. And we just start to make cookies out of all life experiences. But that's not what we can do. Because sometimes suffering can be the result of personal sin. And that is a cause of suffering. Uh, if, you, if you keep your finger here in John 9 and, and turn over to John chapter 5. Now we're going to be comparing John chapter 5 and John chapter 9 many times over uh, as we study. Uh, because there are, are so many parallels between this, these two chapters. Uh, the healing, uh, the response, and, and so many things. But if you look at John chapter 5 verse 14... After Jesus had healed a man, and the man didn't even bother learning Jesus' name, uh, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Then he gives him a command. He says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What's the implication there? That this man's uh, suffering, he had been uh, paralyzed for, or for 38 years, is that this was a result of some decision that he had made. It was a reality. There was a connection between his sin and his suffering. So suffering can be the result of personal sin. Suffering can also be uh, the result of parental sin. Right? So the disciples weren't too far off there. Yeah. Can, uh, as parents, we make decisions that uh, spread out over to our, our children? Yeah. We can make sinful choices and, and our children uh, experience the results of that. Right? What happens if uh, 
a mother who is pregnant uh, regularly consumes alcohol. Right? That's going to make uh, an impact upon uh, the life of her, her child, right? Parental sin impacting and leading to suffering in the life uh, of uh, children. Suffering can also just be the result of living in a sin-cursed world, right? The, the whole creation is, is fallen uh, and is, is groaning for redemption. And ultimately, that's what we see here, uh, that there is uh, suffering. This is just a reality of living in a world that is fallen and, and cursed by sin. And then there, additionally, you could also add that, that suffering can be the result of following Jesus. Uh, there is also a reality, if we are going to, to follow Christ as his disciples, that we are going to face persecution. We're going to face additional tribulation. So we just l- add on the layers of what can cause suffering in our lives. Living in a fallen world, following Jesus, uh, parental sin, our own personal decisions. All of this adds on more and more. But one thing we can make very clear, suffering is never the result of prenatal sin. Uh, you can never sin in the womb that's going to cause you to be blind. Uh, we, we can refute that uh, very clearly uh, and outrightly. But understanding this principle is important, uh, that sin is not always uh, the cause of suffering, uh, because we need to, to guard our minds against jumping to conclusions about the suffering of others, Right? Uh, it's very easy uh, when we see others who are suffering to say, well, maybe they deserve that. Maybe they had that coming. Uh, and we have to be careful uh, against immediately going uh, in that direction. Uh, uh, and again, can our own decisions lead to suffering? Absolutely. There, there is the harvest principle. Uh, which a man uh, reaps uh, or plants, he's, he's going to reap. Uh, and so within that, Uh, We can't jump to conclusions, but uh, we have to be compassionate and understanding and develop a a paradigm for evaluating the root causes of our suffering and the suffering of others. Uh, And the the disciples here jump to a conclusion. They have a presupposition. This man is suffering. He must be sinning in some way. Uh, And in Jesus' response to this, he's going to to clarify and give us a, uh, a powerful explanation concerning uh, human suffering. Uh, And this third premise that we're going to see, Jesus' answer in verse 3, you could title it in this way, that suffering is used by God to reveal His glory. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, And so Jesus uh, was given two options, right? Whose sin is it? This man's or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. And there's a uh, different words in the Greek that communicate levels of contrast. Uh, and, and here it's the, a very strong word of contrast uh, of, uh, it was not this man, but this is the truth. You're saying this, this is what is really true about his suffering. And this is, this is profound. What is true about this man's suffering is that He has been suffering that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is giving us a reason why this man was born blind and has continued to be blind. Because uh, God had ordained uh, that he would be glorified when Jesus 
would heal this man. When, when Jesus gives this man sight, God is going to get all of the glory. This man is going to come and worship Jesus, and he's going to tell others about uh, what Jesus has done for him. The works of God will be displayed in this man's suffering. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a uh, wonderful uh, commentary on the Gospel of John, says, God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Uh, and Jesus' response here to the disciples' questions, it should completely reorient uh, our viewpoint of suffering. Now, we typically view suffering uh, from our perspective. It's all about me. Uh, in uh, his book, The Reason for God, Timothy uh, Keller ha has uh, many quotes in there from people that he has spoken with uh, in uh, his services or after his services or kind of on the streets of uh, Manhattan. Uh, and he, he gives this quote in a conversation uh, with uh, a woman named uh, Hillary and her boyfriend, Rob. Uh, and uh, th they say this. They say, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, said Hillary. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. In either way, the all-good, all-powerful God, God of the Bible couldn't exist. And at that point, her uh, boyfriend, Rob, chimes in and says, This isn't a philosophical issue to me. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. That's interesting, right? In essence, what are, what are his criteria for believing in God? Since he says, if I'm going to believe in God, God has to be willing to keep me from suffering and keep me happy, right? If that God doesn't exist, I'm not going to trust him or follow him or believe in him, right? What, what are the, the un underlying presuppositions of, of what they're saying? What do they believe about God? What do they believe about the world? Well, they, they believe that this world was created for them. They were created to be happy. That God exists for them to make sure that uh, they don't suffer, to protect them from suffering. That's God's job. It's all about them rather than about God. But all of these, all of these presuppositions hold up humanity's happiness as the greatest good. Right? That if this is the greatest good, this is what God should be doing. He should be making us happy and constantly keeping us happy and protecting us from any and all suffering. That's the underlying idea behind these thoughts. And these are, the, the, these are common thoughts in our day. This, this is the opinion of so many. But what we see here is a reorientation from Jesus. You don't look at things from man's perspective. And man's perspective involves just saying sin is the cost, cause of everything. Jesus says, no, we need to reorient our perspective away from ourselves in looking at suffering through the lens of God. Through the lens of His sovereignty, His goodness, His faithfulness. Now, his purpose in creation and history is not our happiness, but His purpose is to bring glory to Himself. Uh, glory to His name. 
not about our happiness. And again, the big picture story of the Bible that we've talked about uh, many times, redemption in Christ for the glory of God, that God is working to rescue a people for himself through his son. Uh, And even as God works in human history to bring himself glory, he does it through suffering. He He does it through the suffering servant, his son whom he sent to live and die for us. So understanding this big picture of the Bible helps us to understand suffering and evil. And I'll I'll give you uh, three additional statements. Uh, There was a a phenomenal book recently published uh, called What About Evil? by a man named Scott Christensen, and I would highly recommend it. And and, in wrestling with these issues, he gives these uh, premises. The premise number one that we have to, to come to grips with that God's ultimate purpose in freely creating the world is to supremely magnify the riches of His glory. Creation exists about God's glory, not about ourselves. Premise number two, God's glory is supremely magnified in the atoning work of Christ, which is the sole means of accomplishing our redemption. If God is going to to save us, uh, He is going to Uh, send his son uh, to atone for our sin and he's going to be supremely glorified in this but all this means premise number three that redemption is unnecessary unless human beings have fallen into sin why is that why is there suffering uh, and evil in the world because it works for the glory of god the conclusion Therefore, the fall of humanity is necessary to God's ultimate purpose in creating the world, his own glory. Uh, And again, reorienting our understanding of suffering, not about our happiness. That's not why God exists. He's not a a genie in a bottle, not here to, to fulfill our three wishes and always make us happy. He's here to bring glory to his name. But there's still so much more to this, and I know it's what we've kind of rushed, uh, along this uh, many many books have been written about this Uh, and if this is something you have additional questions about happy to to talk more with you there's so much to comprehend concerning the nature of suffering Uh, and there's going to be some that we we cannot fully grasp deuteronomy 29 29 says the secret things belong to the lord and and there are going to be times when we are suffering in this life and we we don't comprehend what it's leading to or or, uh, how God is going to use it for good. But in those times, uh, we have to trust that God is good, that he is faithful, uh, that he uh, is working for his glory and for our good. Uh, Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, We have to trust and believe that. Uh, and believing that God is working not for our happiness, but for His glory. So this is just kind of that, that precursor overview. These three principles to help frame our understanding of human suffering. That suffering is a universal human experience. It is not always a result of sin. And suffering is used by God to reveal His glory. Another book I would highly recommend, uh, kind of more... Uh, pastoral if you are in the middle of suffering right now i would encourage you to read a book by jerry bridges called trusting god 
And one of the, the big premises in there, or the, his big truths, are that if we're going to trust God, we have to believe three specific things about God. Number one, that he is absolutely sovereign, that he is in control of all things. Secondly, that he is perfect in love, that what he is bringing about, uh, he is doing in love. And he is also infinitely wise. So of all the, the options that God had, uh, he's chosen what is best, what is loving, uh, and he has had the power to guide and direct it. And I would say this, Jerry Bridges is not writing things just theoretically. Uh, he is writing as one who has suffered. This is how he describes his own suffering, his own situation in life. He says, when I was an infant, I had a bad case of measles. And the virus apparently settled in my eyes and in my right ear, leaving me with monocular vision, meaning that his eyes don't work in tandem together, and leaving him with deafness in his right ear. He says, was God in control of that virus, or was I simply a victim of a chance childhood disease? God's moment-by-moment sustaining of his universe and everything in it leaves me no choice but to accept that the virus was indeed under his controlling hand. God was not looking the other way when that virus settled in the nerve ending of my ear and the muscles of my eyes. If we are to trust God, we must learn to see that he is continuously at work in every aspect and every moment of our lives. And trusting that God is absolutely sovereign, perfect in love and infinitely wise, that he is working all things together for our good to make us more and more like his son, and he's working all things together to bring glory to his name. Even as what we're going to study in John 9, that this man uh, was uh, born blind so that he might be healed by Jesus so that the works of God might be revealed in him. It's going to be a profound chapter Uh, And this is the backdrop for it. But again, if you are here this morning and you are in the midst of suffering, if you are in the midst of uh, just difficult circumstances in life, I want you just to to know we are here to help. We are here to minister, to counsel in any way, shape, or form that we can. Uh, And I'm happy to speak with you afterwards uh, and to come alongside you and ultimately point you to Christ uh, and his word. Uh, to see uh, how God is in, working in and through your life, even as he was in John 9 and this man born blind and in Jerry Bridges uh, and in so many other ways. Uh, but let's turn to the Lord in prayer now.